Hey, Tally Gabriel here, Unthinkable's producer. I'm jumping in to introduce this episode with Jay because we've talked a lot together about this week's core themes especially. In order to let you in on the ideas we're exploring today, it only felt right to go about it the way we've been approaching it behind the scenes, as a conversation. Me, Jay, this week's guest, and now you. You're as much a part of this conversation as we are. Welcome aboard. So, I was reading this BuzzFeed article the other day about how millennials are all totally burned out. Now, hear me out. I know millennials get a bad rap for being lazy and murdering every industry, and as a millennial myself, it's pretty annoying. But this particular piece wasn't saying we're burned out because we're lazy. The author, Anne Helen Peterson, was saying that we get burned out so easily because we've been conditioned to think we need to work constantly forever. We have to hustle to create the next shining special example in our industry. A big theme Jay and I are exploring this year is how to keep your work interesting, how to continually create refreshing things without going over the top or totally burning out. Hello, Jay here, the voice you, you're probably used to hearing on the show. <laughs> uh, the things that Tally's talking about here, it, it's usually easier said than done. Like, say, for example, you figure out that early podcast episodes of your new show are working really well. They're resonating deeply with your audience. Now you face this choice of like how to keep improving them based on that early learning. Like maybe you start releasing content a day sooner or you have a super big name guest on your show the next time out. But this method of always building up based on what's working can be pretty unsustainable. You know, at some point, you're either going to hit a ceiling for how fast you can ship an episode or you're not going to be able to get a bigger guest the next time out compared to this time. If you listen to a past episode of our show called The Paradox of Exceeding Expectations, you might remember a story I told about visiting a hotel in Boston. There, I encountered this valet service that handed you a ticket when you arrived, and that ticket said, call down and your car will be ready in 30 minutes. Okay, sounds great. So I called, and they said 10. Even better. They exceeded my expectations. And then when I arrived at the front desk, it was actually ready in 5. But the next time out, they can't make it ready in four, and then three, then two, then one. Like the march to that logical conclusion is zero, which is impossible. They can't just idle every single car on the curb. So sometimes if you're just focused on building up, you can topple over because that's not the thing you should always consistently reinvent. And when you're in the public eye, delivering your creation, say, weekly or monthly, there can be a lot of pressure to perform better than the last time all the time. Right, which you just can't do, you know, like progress is zigzaggy. In the words of James Miller, the author and creator of A Small Fiction, one of our best episodes this year, I think, uh, he told us in that episode, you will put out bad work. So you better not focus on avoiding that because that's a fool's errand. You're going to put out bad work, period. So instead, what if you focused on continual improvement and refinement, or as we're calling it on this show all year long, reinvention? This is one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to this episode's guest, Sarah Cooper. You may know Sarah from her hilarious stand-up if you're in the tech world. She's a popular parody comedian about tech and business and the culture they're in. Or maybe you know her from one of her best-selling books. There was 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, and uh, the latest book is called How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. They're both hysterical. And they both speak truths that we kind of need to hear in the business world, especially in tech. And that's the point of parody, right? So why are we talking to her uh, in this exploration to master the art of reinvention? Well, few among us have to reinvent more consistently than a stand-up comedian. And we're going to get into the nuance, and I'll also compare it a little bit to my profession of keynote speaking. 
And what I learned by talking to Sarah is not only going to transform my speaking, it's going to change the way I look at consistently creating great work. It's daring, it's hilarious, it's fresh. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. And just a heads up, this is another one of our Creative Cafe episodes where we take somebody's past work and just kind of bat it around and analyze it together. It's the kind of informal and cathartic conversation that creators rarely have, but when we do, it just lights us up in the best way possible. So let's step into the cafe. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Sarah Cooper, or I should say reintroduce you actually, because we did a Slingshot episode a long time ago. Slingshots, if you have been listening to the show for years, you might remember we used to do a miniseries called Slingshots, and they were all about how side projects can shoot us forward. Well, at the time, Sarah had just left her job at Google, and she was looking to become a comedic writer and a stand-up comic as a new career path. In the years since, she's done some truly awesome things that are hysterical and worth learning from, but don't just take my word for it. It's interesting being married to a software engineer. Um, it's, we solve problems in kind of weird ways, like anytime there's an issue in a relationship, he makes me file a bug. <laughs> you know, like, I thought we weren't spending enough time together, so I filed a bug, and he marked it working as intended. <laughs> And then I felt like he wasn't listening to me, so I filed a bug for that, and he reassigned it to my therapist. He doesn't even use Bugzilla, so it didn't work. Along with a pretty great stand-up routine, Sarah has written two books. I mentioned them at the top, 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, and the more recent, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. They're predictably hilarious and smart, and she's used that journey and this material in her stand-up act as well. So I came up with some tricks to look smart in meetings. And I wrote a whole book about it called 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. Uh, And I'm going to give you guys some of the tricks. Uh, The first one is translate percentages into fractions. Okay? So if someone says 25% of people clicked on this button, you go, oh, about one in four. I know the first book was based on a viral article that you wrote, 10, 10 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. And then the book became 100 Tricks, which was awesome, by the way. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, was this book also based on other writing or parts of your act? You know, where did the idea come from? It was also based on a viral post called Nine Non-Threatening Leadership Strategies for Women. And uh, that I posted that in July of 2016. And that was, um, the idea for that kind of came from an Onion article that I read that was like, the headline was, Women, woman fears she was too aggressive during meeting. Um, and then it just kind of sparked this idea of all the times I'd sort of changed how I wanted to say things in order to seem more approachable and likable and, you know, not too abrasive and all of the things that I did while I was uh, working in the corporate world. And so, yeah. Um, that went viral and people kept talking about it and, um, I kept getting a lot of, uh, interest in that topic. And so this book 
was actually going to be more more of a broad parody of thought leadership. Um, but then when people kept coming back to that article, I just decided, you know, it probably this is probably the topic that it should be about because people are already showing a lot of interest in it. When we have to do something consistently, I think it's tempting to run in one of two different extreme directions. Either we sprint to the side of the spectrum that says, seek no opinions, you're the expert, you're the creator, it's your vision, just keep shipping your work over and over again. Or the other extreme, we have to do something that is purely for the audience. So what works? What gets people to come to a website? What gets people to subscribe? What fills seats? What is the best practice? But in the middle is the mashup of those two ideas. It starts with what we want to create, what we think will resonate in the room or online. And then with that raw or initial idea, we can share it out to an audience, right? We're living at this really messy intersection between what we want to create and what they want to receive. So the next time you put out your work, make sure that before you launch it in full to everybody, you've put it to the test. You've invited some VIPs or a subset of your list or some small trusted people in that audience to give their take on it. You know, how does it feel for them and for you? I think the big thing that you'll notice a lot of comedians do right off the bat is make fun of themselves. And that's something that I learned, uh, it took me a while to learn, is that you can't just start out making fun of other people or like... Uh, something that might be kind of like biting humor without first proving to the audience that you're a fair target as well and that you know your limitations and you know that the things about yourself that are open to be made fun of and that just puts the audience at ease and you know kind of on your side um and then the other thing to do is just like i recently (laughs) learned the name of this term but it's called like um mentioning the moment Um, And this is actually something that people can do anywhere in meetings or in any situation, which is basically just being so present with the audience that when something happens, when, when instead of a laugh, you get an, oh, you don't just keep going. You mention that moment and you call it out and um, respond to it. And that helps people know that you're not just like reading a script. You're actually there with them and you're responding to them in real time. And that always, you know, makes people feel a little bit more like it's a conversation and less like a performance. It's awesome to hear you say that. So as a, as a public speaker, there's like so much I try to draw from comedy. And like whenever a comedian talks about their craft, I'm, I'm there. Like I want to hear them discuss it because I'm like learning so much. It's also just interesting. And like uh, when you're, when you do keynotes, you do something called a modular speech. If you do a lot of them where like you're creating an act essentially, and then you have these bits that, you know, maybe I'm speaking to a business crowd instead of a consumer crowd. And so I need to substitute in a software company example instead of whatever, a coffee company example. But I know that the moments are similar, like this person encountered something difficult and, you know, the lesson I'm going to teach you is similar. And what happens is you go from this like rigid speech that's the same every time to a modular speech, which has like almost earmarked in your mind, like different moments you can change. I'm like picturing like if you have building blocks, but then you put space between the blocks and those spaces you get to fill with like comments to the audience or you talk to somebody at cocktail hour before and they like had this throwaway comment about the industry and you like weave that in, like giving yourself the permission to not just perform like a robot, I think is like an evolutionary trait of a performer. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's something that it takes practice because even I, sometimes I will get sidetracked and I'll start talking to the audience and like riffing on something that somebody said. And then I get kind of like turned around because I was like, wait, I came up here with knowing I was going to do this, this and this, and now I've done this. So now where do I, how do I go back to it? So I think a lot, sometimes it takes practice to like, you know, not because sometimes I'll be on stage and be like, wait, did I, did I already say that or have I gotten there yet? Because I just, I'll just get lost in, in the audience. Um, so yeah, this takes practice, but I think that's a huge part of getting the audience on your side. So the thing that's always stuck with me from both this conversation and anytime I can get my hands on a clip of comedians talking about their craft is this idea of aerating ideas. It's this notion that we have to basically level the playing field. doesn't matter who we are or what we've done in the past. Once we walk up on stage, once we put our work out there, it's a meritocracy. You know, unless we're doing something to purely self-express, the audience becomes the ultimate and final arbiter. You let out a little bit at a time, or you give it to small audiences bit by bit. You let the audience help you flesh out a little bit further what you thought would be great. And that leads to the biggest or brightest or most successful or most consistently resonant version of what you're trying to create. I I read one of those articles online that said you should follow your dreams and quit your job. (laughs) So I quit my job. But then I realized that those articles are written by people that want your job. (laughs) So now I just sit at home writing articles like that. (laughs) Someone bites. What I'd love to to try to figure out is like how an act, or or maybe it's easier to talk about a bit, but how this stuff takes shape over time. The reason I brought up Kara Swisher was she'd mentioned before that she and probably lots of other journalists will like air out their ideas in short form, like on Twitter to see the reaction. Like, hey, I'm working on this theory. I might want to write a column on this. I'm just going to post the strongly opinionated version, like my, my thesis almost on Twitter and see if people react or question it or add to it. And it changes. So you're like exposing it in small ways to an audience for input. And then you can evolve it to the next thing. So in Kara Swisher's world, that's from a tweet to like a column in your world, maybe it's from, you know, like a smaller club to a bigger club or one gig to another gig. But talk me through like, how does a bit evolve over time? Because all year long, I'm going to explore this idea of like, how to create consistently great work. And my thesis is, which is not, you know, groundbreaking is, you know, consistently great work consistently changes. It's not about finding the one thing and then putting it on repeat. It's about like always aerating ideas and workshopping it. So, um, so yeah, walk me through how that works with a joke. Well, it usually starts with some premise and, you know, some premises are funny on their own uh, without, you'll get a laugh just from the premise and those are the best premises. Um, A recent one from a headline was um, at at a recent Oval Office meeting, Trump handed out printed copies of his tweets, um, which is just ridiculous on its own. (laughs) You don't even need to say anything after that. I think it's ridiculous because I don't think Trump knows how to operate a printer. I mean, there's so many sad things about it, right? Obviously, he doesn't know how to operate a printer. So he asked someone else to print out his tweets. And so someone else had to be like, okay. And and that person definitely was thinking, what? You know, they were like, you're going to make me print out a tweet to hand out in an Oval Office in the White House. Okay, so anyway, I could just go on and on about this for like a long time. Well, no, that's an example. Like, I don't know if you were thinking about that part of it as 
what is ridiculous. Oh, like maybe yeah. you're thinking about the physical, you know what I mean? Like that people get precious with their own ideas and they're like, I don't want to expose it before I feel like it's perfect, but I actually think exposing it to the world like makes it better. I don't know. Exactly. Um, like, like the, the printer part of it is a, an, an aspect I didn't think about. The, th- the thought I was like, the thing I was thinking about is the fact that it, you know, Twitter is digital and Trump doesn't get it. Like he's still, he's using Twitter like it's 1936. Like it's, <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like I just said that to you and you had a different take on it. And that's like a different, you know, aspect of it that could come, like there could be several punchlines about Trump trying to use a printer. Yeah. Um, and so that, I mean, what you were saying before about like just putting out ideas like that and sort of like getting input and getting ideas on angles. I mean, that's a lot of how it works with open mics. And so, you know, you'll take um, a concept to an open mic. And uh, I was just reading, uh, Ray Romano did an interview where he doesn't write down word for word what he's going to say. And I used to write down word for word, but now I'm more like outline format. And a lot of times if it's something new that you're not really sure where you want to go with it, you just write down that premise. You just write down maybe an idea or two of what a punchline could be. And then when you get up there, you know, you just start sort of riffing and you start seeing like what the audience is responding to. And um, that kind of helps you shape that idea. Yeah. There's almost like this implied, I think what's interesting about great performers is they have to anticipate something that's implicit, which is like, what is the audience thinking now and then next? And so that way you don't lose them. Like whether it's a joke or a point you're making in a speech, I feel like the danger is um, even if you're trying to make, even if the thing you're working on, the bit, the, the concept, the premise, the idea that you're teaching someone in business, even if it's solid, if you skip a moment, like because you understand it so well and you go too far ahead, if you take a little leap in logic or in the flow of what you're saying, you can lose the audience really quickly. Cause then they're like, wait, what? I don't like, there's something missing there. And I remember when I first started speaking, a friend of mine who's been doing like, I mean, this is, it's insane. He does like 60 to 70 speeches a year, which, you know, if you're local in one city and you're doing stand up, maybe, I don't know if that sounds like a lot to you, but you know, with a keynote business, you're traveling all the time. There's not like one condensed network of conferences in one city you can just revisit. So like he's all over the map all the time. It's, I could, I couldn't do it, but he, he handed me this template that he called a dialogue outline, which is basically like, so when you first walk on stage, there's going to be this implicit question on the audience's mind and you need to answer that question. And then that's going to create like littler questions and you need to answer those questions. And so he basically, instead of saying, here's how to structure a speech, he's, he's like, here's how to interact with the audience, which is going on in their brains, but you aren't hearing it. And you, you almost, almost never see it if you're whatever being flooded by a spotlight too. So there's like this dance you're doing, but you have to understand their part and your part. With comedy, part of what makes people laugh is an element of surprise. And so, um, there's in, in a setup, you might, you might want to make sure that they know where you're going, but when it comes to the payoff, you kind of want to take them somewhere where they might not have been expecting you were going to take them. Uh, okay. So like if we use the Trump printer printing his tweets example, like you might set up the premise, people chuckle to themselves because it seems ridiculous, but they're latching onto the president and his ridiculous tweets or the fact that he printed those ridiculous tweets. And then you maybe let a moment linger and, you know, you say, I don't know, I could see you saying something like, 
which is ridiculous, right? And then you let it linger and you're like, Trump doesn't know how to use a printer, right? right? Like that's a, like a little bit of a misdirection almost is, is what you're saying is important in comedy. Right, exactly. Um, that's, you know, there's two things that really make people laugh and that's truth and surprise. And so you want to like, Trump doesn't know how to use a printer is a little bit of a surprise because, you know, maybe that's not most of the audience probably wasn't expecting that. But also it's just true. Like it's just it's just an honest statement. And so like those (laughs) two things together are what will give you the best punchlines. So I want to go back to evolving that joke. So now you have the premise, the concept that makes you laugh. You think it's there's something there to explore. You air it out a little bit or aerate it on stages at open mic nights, let's say. And then what are you looking for? Obviously, you're looking for signal from the audience as to it worked or didn't work or somewhere in the middle. But then how do you know? Like I struggle with this as a speaker. I don't know if it's like the setup that was the issue or if it was like the quick aside to make it funny or if they didn't read like the story itself didn't resonate like there's all these micro moments and elements of a of a bit in a speech or a comedy act and i'm seeing the audience's reaction as are you how do you then know like what to work on specifically when you revise it for the next gig it's the laugh it's the reaction it's um the the response from the audience and there's no more brutal audience than an open mic audience because they're all comedians who don't actually want to make you think that you're funny (laughs) they want to (laughs) make you feel as worthless as possible because they all feel worthless too um and so it's 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 really the best if if you can get a response from that audience then then you know you've hit on something um the thing that I struggle with and the best comedians do is that they don't stop at one punchline or one angle. They keep going and going and going and going and, and ripping it apart. And they write, they write down everything having to do with a printer and everything having to do with Trump and, you know, everything having to do with his tweets and everything having to do with oh, the Oval Office and everything having to do with journalists. And so they like, it's, they will explore it from every single angle as much as possible. And, and then, you know, when you, when you, if you want to create something that is really going to make an audience just like double over dying laughing, you are hitting them with punchline after punchline after punchline. Um, it just takes a lot of exploration and brainstorming around that, those, those concepts that you've put in your premise. Did you feel like that affects how you write? You know, you've written multiple books and you you write blog posts and a newsletter and obviously you know social media stuff and, and maybe you're writing notes I don't know for your podcast but you're spending a lot of time writing where it's not being delivered on a stage live in front of an audience but does that idea of like taking this one premise landing a punchline but then exploring like rolling it into other moments does does that somehow affect your writing or are there other ways that being a stand up has affected your writing always loved writing and I always loved comedy but I don't have a degree. I don't, I, you know, I've taken classes and workshops and things like that, but a lot of it has just been like learning as I go. And so, um, you know, I, I put that 10 tricks to peer smart and that is, is just a very honest, you know, look at the things that I saw, um, you know, as I'm, you know, making more comedy and writing more, you know, I'm realizing there's different ways to approach things. There's like things might be absurd and you know good satire sometimes takes you to the next level it's not just about telling the audience exactly uh an honest 
you know, experience that you had so that they can relate back and say, yeah, I've been there. It's how do you take it even further? And um, so this idea of like taking things as far as they can possibly go applies to writing if it's online. And it also applies to stand-up comedy. And so it's all sort of like back and forth. I mean, some of it's improv as well, like, you know, being honest in the moment and really listening, you know, that's, that helps inform, um, you know, what, what is the true essence of this? What is the game here? Like what, what kind of game are we playing? You know, you're, you've basically created a career where one of the most necessary functions that you do is I keep saying aerating the idea, like exposing it to the world or whatever for improvement and testing. You just keep taking it further, keep exploring it more. And like, First thing I thought of was like, you know, I came out of marketing. I wanted to be a writer. I sort of am now. I make shows and give speeches for a living and occasionally write a book. It's like, the hell is that career? It's like, I don't know. Just making it up. Um, And uh, But so I'm writing all the time now. And I look back at some of the marketers I've worked with or those I still interact with. And I'll see them do something like publish a list article. And the list article kills. It's like people loved it. They write you about it. They comment. They share it. They subscribe. It worked. And then the for some reason, their reaction is like, oh, it must be the structure. It must be the form factor of the list article. We should do more list articles. Whereas I've always been like, well, it's probably what you wrote about. It's probably the material. Like you should explore that more, right? Don't do another list article. Like you wrote about how to create a comedy act. Like maybe go deeper into the behind the scenes of creating an act. Like maybe that's why they love that article. It has nothing to do with the structure. And it sounded like kind of saying that is like, it's not just the, you know, type of joke or the way you wrote the post. It's what you wrote about and then exploring that from new angles and taking it from a blog post to a book is a good ex- exercise of that. Um, and now I'm rambling back, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people overthink things, me included. And, you know, you try to make things a lot more complicated than they are. But like this, the simple, like just one sentence um, setup has so much in it and people, they, they skate past all of that and they think, well, I got to come up with something like really interesting and clever. That's going to be like the most, you know, surprising take on this or whatever. And it's going to come out of nowhere. And it's like, no, people don't want things to come completely out of nowhere. They, they want to, you know, like maybe in comedy, like it's, it's like, it's called like A to C, like you went from A to B and then you went from B to C, but then you only say the C. And so it's surprising, but you, but people are, it isn't out of nowhere. They can see that you explored something specific about what you said first and you kind of jumped through a few hoops and got to somewhere surprising and interesting and honest. But, um, you know, you didn't, you didn't say something that was just completely unrelated to what you just started saying. Right. And and I think that makes for a more enjoyable act. Like I think you and I are both in the business of getting people to the end of things, which is so hard to do. It's like you're going to pay attention to me now for whatever, 10, 15, 25, f- 45 minute speech, 60 minute episode, whatever. That's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it's even harder to do if it's like, OK, I'm done with that point. And now I'm making a completely disparate point and it's like not connected to anything at all. Yeah. And I've noticed this with like authors as one example. Maybe you're going through this yourself. Like you're doing arguably this is part of this, uh, like a kind of a press book tour and you're taking ideas from the book and you're talking about them and the backstory of it and the content in it, et cetera. And I did this with my book uh, last year. It's kind of still going on where like I find myself saying similar things, especially when I get asked similar questions. So 
I've taken material and now I'm on a tour with it. And like that speaks to standups specifically too. You're, you sort of tour the best material you have, but then you also have this exploration component where you're not just like taking the same thing and putting it in new places. There's some of that, but you're also exploring how deep it can go and how to make changes to it. Yeah. Um, so along those lines of this like exploration notion, what's, what's like the oldest joke that you have that you go to, it's like tried and true, you've been telling it for years, and has it changed at all in your delivery of it? Um, I think, you know, I talk a lot about my identity as someone who's ethnically ambiguous and Jamaican um, and my family. And I think over time, I've tried to just be, I think when you start out, you're like, how do I make jokes? How do I get people to laugh? And then the more you do it, you're like, well, how do I be like really honest about this? Or how do I expose myself a little bit more, be a little bit more vulnerable? And so I think the more I talk about those things, I'm kind of more exposing myself and my own insecurities about um, identity and, and being confused about who exactly I am and how I should present myself in different situations. And so I think it just gets more personal as time goes on. Is that because you become more confident or is it, you know, you are also looking at the reactions you're getting and you're just kind of going deeper in that, you know, like you're like, oh, I started to open up more personally a little bit, got a bigger laugh. So I'll do that more next time. So is it confidence? Is it the audience feedback? Is it kind of messy smashing together of a bunch of that? Yeah, I think it's a bunch of it. It's like, yeah, you, you definitely get more confident and more willing to say um, more than you would when you first started. Although I said a lot when I first started too, <laughs> but I think I was still just like, let me go for the laugh. And then now I'm like, you know, how can I, how can I really share something? Right. Yeah. It's, it, it becomes, I don't know, like I find myself as a speaker, I am more, I went through this period of time where I was hyper mindful because I was new. So it's like, am I saying the right things in the right order? Does the audience like it? Like it was sort of like, oh God, please like me. And then I got into this mode where the work almost felt stale mm-hmm. for a little while because you're like, oh, I've done this bit before. I've told this story a million times. Like I need some new moments. I hope the audience can't tell that I'm sort of talking to myself while talking to them. You know, you have that like dual talk track in your mind, essentially, where you're like commenting to yourself about how okay. things are going while speaking words. Mm-hmm. Do, do you get that, by the way? Is that a thing? I have been working through this issue where sometimes I'm performing or speaking and I just feel like I'm losing people. And, um, it's like, it's kind of like, I've got this smile on my face. I don't look nervous at all. I look like I totally got this, but behind the scenes, I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. I'm running around the room. I'm like, there's fires everywhere. Like I'm, you know, it's just, it's (laughs) like, it's like that cartoon where it's like, this is fine. And the person's like, there's fire everywhere, but except like, yeah, uh, there's fire like behind that. So it's like, yeah. yeah so I, your, your, your internal talk track is fire. My internal talk track is like the lights have been turned off in people's brains and there's just crickets going through them. Like mm-hmm. they're bored because mm-hmm. whatever, I'm telling the same company story, mm-hmm. a case study I dug up or whatever. And I've told this 50 times before over the last two years, which is not that much time to like be on a stage telling the same story. So mm-hmm. like, Something I really want to figure out, and I've, this is a total messy concept, so maybe we can just like pick at it. I don't think there's a right answer, but like when something is working, you kind of risk that thing growing stale over time, whether because you start to check out and not feel invested in it, which is like my internal dialogue when I've done that story a million times, 
or it actually does stop resonating with the audience for whatever reason. You know, maybe the joke you're telling is time sensitive and there's a new context, so it doesn't work. Like that happens a lot with old acts I've gone back to. I've seen like it's a political joke and I kind of sort of get it, but it really doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I want to try to figure out is like when something is actually working, you still should be making change to it, changes to it, right? Or are you like truly setting something and forgetting it and moving on to other parts? I don't know. I get really pissed off at like the stuff that I, the jokes that I've been telling that um, for years and they all like almost always work. And when I try to write new stuff, it doesn't work as well as the old stuff. And yeah. I'm like, why don't you do that joke? I'm like, I've been doing that d- joke. And then I get like so angry because I feel like I'll never write a joke that's as good as that joke. And um, so like if, I don't know, if something is really working, I I tend to make small improvements, but I don't change much about it, you know? And um, I think the way to, to um, for, you know, I think, it, I think it's a little bit different for me just because, um, you know, sometimes when I say something for the first time, it'll be funny. And then as soon as I start saying it and like turning it into something that's written that I've practiced, it becomes not funny anymore. Um, that to me is a sign that it wasn't, funny when I first said it, it just for some reason got a laugh or because of the way I said it, the delivery, it got a laugh. Um, the things that have worked for years and years and years almost always still work. And so I really don't change them that much. When you're incorporating new material, do you feel like it's just, I have the same act and uh, I know this is sort of an existential question for comedians. Like I've heard Seinfeld debate other comedians about this, but like when you have an act and it's working, So now we're zooming out, not from a bit, but to the whole act. You're like, okay, I have my act. How do you decide if it's like, I'm just going to keep remixing and changing little incremental things versus I'm going to reinvent this entirely with, I don't know, every year that turns over or every couple of years. Like, How do you individually make that decision between evolving from the same base and actually going in a very, very new direction given, I don't know, your new book or a new year? Yeah, it really depends on more so the audience. Um, like, you know, I could be, I could go up on stage and think to myself, well, I'm going to talk about my identity and my family and all that stuff. And then for whatever reason, I start talking to the audience. I realize there's a bunch of tech people in the audience. And then I'm like, well, I, you know, it makes sense to do all my tech material here because that's who's in the audience. And so a lot of the things are just kind of like, what you said before about being modular, like I can kind of like rearrange things on the fly and, and kind of around a subject that, that I kind of want to stay on. Um, and you know, a lot of times like comedians will get together. I have comedian friends who will hear me do something and they'll be like, Oh, you know, you say this thing about, uh, this movie, well, this is a really famous line from that movie. So you should probably work that line into that bit that you have about that movie. And so the entire bit is the same, except I've added that one line that the comedian suggested that I add. Um, so it's like, it, it changes it, it. Like the stuff that's really working changes really incrementally. It's when you start from scratch and you're not sure what you're doing. Um, and sometimes I just, you know, I try something, you know, four or five times and it works three out of the five times. And I'm still just not sure if it's worth doing again. I have a lot of material like that. Are there things that you find like hilarious that you wish audiences did? And for some reason you can't get them to see it your way. Um, 
I've, I, I've had so many of those <laughs> over many years of doing this where I, uh, <laughs> I had a joke about like being really excited to eat a hot dog and how, you know, at work, everyone's like, Oh my God, I'm so excited about this conference call. I'm so excited about this project. I'm so excited. And I just, I don't get it because it's like, you know, when I'm excited, it's because I'm going to eat something that's like a hot dog or like um, <laughs> ice cream or pizza. Like that's what's really exciting to me. Um, and I've always just liked that concept of like, you know, let's be honest about what's really exciting, you know, like let's, you know, there's a scale here of excitement. Um, and I've tried that like many different ways and I, I still think it's a, it's a funny concept, but it's, it's been tough to like figure out exactly how to deliver it in a way that it makes sense to people. And a lot of times it's just because, you know, maybe your analogy isn't exactly right. Cause sometimes you think, Oh, this is like the, a brilliant analogy. Like I had this analogy of like, I really am scared to get, into a conversation that I can't get out of. Um, you know, it's kind of like a gym membership. So like I treat every person I meet, like they're a gym membership that I'm not going to be able to get out of, but then, you know, that wasn't really getting a laugh. So now it's more like I treat every, I treat every new conversation. Like it's the Iraq war. Like I'm never going to get out of it. Um, So like that's, you know, so sometimes you just have to work on like that, like that analogy or that way, the angle that you're looking at it from. In all of this conversation, everything has been underpinned by this understanding that like, number one, you're subjected to the whims of the audience. Like it's the level playing field that is performance in front of an audience. If they don't like it, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or what you think of the material. Like they're the arbiters in the room, which can be scary as hell. Um, We've also talked about how everything you're doing is iterative. So you're never like, okay, I've got it. I've got the quote unquote product here. I got my act and I'm now I'm done working on it. And now I can just deliver it everywhere and be great and famous and rich and whatever. Like it's, you've never found it and you're never finished. So like everything is constantly moving. Other people are constantly judging you. So with that as a backdrop, where do you draw your confidence from? Like, how do you get yourself to do that kind of work where your job by definition, it's like no certainty, no precision, Everyone's judging you. Everything's changing. So where do you draw confidence from to keep pushing forward? I have no idea. <laughs> I, <laughs> have, I struggle with confidence constantly. And I think it's such a, I, I just started reading um, this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, it's a very old book by Dale Carnegie. And um, his analogy is always like, well, what does, what does, the person, what does the other person want? And always put that at the forefront of your mind. What does the other person want? But the thing is, I feel like we've evolved into a place where people don't want to be given just what they want. Like they want something interesting. You And we also evolved into a place where like the people that say, you know what, this is what I like. This is what makes me laugh. This is what I want to say are almost the ones who win. The people that ignore what everybody wants and just does what they want to do, but does it like with a lot of conviction and a lot of commitment, um, they kind of are the ones that are sort of ruling everything, I think. Um, So, you know, you get on stage and like, one idea is like, if you're having a good time, people will follow, you know, if you are relaxed and, and, and making yourself laugh, other people will laugh. 
And I think that's, you know, that tends to be true. If you're enjoying yourself, if you're interested in what you're talking about, then things are going to go a lot better than if you're just constantly like, oh, they didn't laugh at that. Oh, I don't think they like that. Oh, that guy just got up and went to the bathroom. Like that stuff is so distracting. And so like now it's, it's really more about like, how can I, how can I really have the most fun myself? And so people can see that I'm having fun and then they can have fun with me. That was like that to me is why I hate advice like from that book where it's like it's all about what the other person wants. And it's like, yeah, but to serve that person really well with whatever my craft is, I have to also be personally invested in this. Like I have to bring my full self to the work and give a shit. And especially when you create stuff for a living where you're not just turning a crank, someone else says to turn faster every quarter, you're inventing and making it's. It's you taking in the world that flows through you. The, the, one of my favorite quotes from Anthony Bourdain is about how to be a, a writer or a maker is kind of monstrous because you're saying like, I have something to say and you will enjoy it enough to buy the book or watch past the commercial break. And there's something not normal about that expectation of yourself. It's impossible to do that if you're like, well, I'm just going to remove myself and do whatever the hell you want. I just think that's terrible advice. I was watching a reality show the other night called Hollywood Exes, which if you haven't seen it, it's about women who used to be married to men that used to matter. And there was this lady on there, and she had this really awesome catchphrase. She was like, honey, you need to check your email. I said, that's all she did. She was like, honey, you need to check your email. So I think I was like, yes, we need to work more technology into our catchphrases. And it's like getting up in your face, you're like, oh, honey, you need to back up your hard drive, honey. So where does this conversation leave us in this journey we're on to understand the art of reinvention? Well, I I certainly learned a lot, and chief among them is this idea of aerating concepts and ideas before putting them out into the world with your full sort of marketing push or confidence behind them. So maybe you do this with your audience or trusted peers or with what I call game tape, which is when you basically consume your own content as if you're the viewer, you're critiquing it like an athlete would a tape of the game. But whatever the case, when you let your ideas aerate, you breathe more life into them. You let them flesh out a little bit further and you find different angles and different ways to say things. This to me is one of the most necessary things to do, especially in the social media age, where We're not just creating something for ourselves. It's fine to self-express, but as soon as we introduce the concept of an audience and therefore probably some goals we have with our marketing, let's say, we now have to make sure that what we're creating is something they actually love. Running your ideas by that audience is a great way to get into the habit of listening to the people that you're creating things for. Opening up a dialogue, instead of just serving them ideas that you got in some back room somewhere without any feedback, only strengthens your relationship with that audience. This relationship is one of the most valuable ones you'll have in your entire life. I mean, the most powerful thing I do is schedule one-on-one video calls with listeners to my show and now my shows, plural. It's been transformative. It seems so simple. I'm just having a conversation with people, the first half being a bunch of questions I ask them, the second half being adding value back to them to talk about anything they want at all. But those simple conversations lead to tons of transformative ideas in my line of work because 
I'm talking things out. I'm forced to articulate or share little snippets of what I'm thinking about, what I'm creating. And then it gets better because I've put it through a little bit of a a ringer. Ultimately, this stuff leads us right down the path we want to be on. The path of consistently creating work that is new, that surprises us, and is wonderfully refreshing to the audience. In the end, what we create isn't consistent. How we make them feel should be. Unthinkable is me, Jay Akunzo, and uh, I'm suffering through a cold right now, so I hope I didn't sound too weird or too choky today because I keep wanting to cough. I keep having to take little sips of my my water on the side. Anyways, that's my voice, Jay Akunzo. You also heard from Tally Gabriel at the top of the show. Tally is the producer who is responsible for the edit here, and I really appreciate her help all season long making Unthinkable better and more consistent as we continue to reinvent this show. Okay, so I want to tell you about that project that I hinted at before, that that new newsletter. As you may or may not know, I recently rebranded Unthinkable Media, the organization behind this show, to marketingshowrunners.com. See, I believe firmly that marketing is not about who arrives, it's about who stays. In other words, our jobs as marketers is not to grab attention, it's to hold it. And it turns out there's a great vehicle for doing so, one that is expressly built to do exactly that. It's called a show. And I've been making lots and lots of shows and also connecting with other show runners, both inside and outside of marketing and tech vendors and you name it. There's a movement happening and it's all around marketers making shows. So I thought, why don't we coalesce that community and bring it together in one place to educate and inspire each other and provide a little bit of uh, commiseration when we need it. I don't know about you, but when I make my show, I'm doing it pretty alone. Working with Tally has been a joy because historically it was just me. Anyways, the first product for marketing showrunners is our monthly newsletter called Hidden Genius. Why is it called Hidden Genius? Well, there's so much conventional wisdom, so much complexity swirling around our world. And then when you introduce a show, there's just so many parts and pieces to produce and distribute that kind of giant project. So complexity clouds our judgment. But I think we can find clarity together if we dig beneath all the conventional layers and find buried within some simple ideas that can have a profound impact on our work, some hidden genius. So once a month on a Friday, I'm going to send you one small idea that can have a massive impact on making great shows, podcasts, docu-series, video shows, you name it. Beneath that, you're going to get two things. First, a link roundup, the best resources that we've either created or found that month for making great shows as a marketer, and a section I'm titling Investor Update. Why? Because everybody who subscribes is in some way an investor into this startup. They might not be doing so with dollars, but they're doing so with something even more precious, their time. So like any good startup founder, I have to give you, well, an investor update. And I go through things like the financing of the company, the revenue I'm thinking through, the platform update, the evangelism I did that month, products I'm working on, and then I create a list of investor asks so you can help contribute to the community and grow it to be something that's useful for you. All right, so that is the Hidden Genius Newsletter. You can go to marketingshowrunners.com slash subscribe to get on the list, and I auto-respond with my contact info and five of the best things I've ever written, I think, about podcasting and showmaking. That's marketingshowrunners.com slash subscribe, or you can click the link in the show notes. In the meantime, remember, there is just so much freaking conventional wisdom out there, so much conventional thinking. But when you're faced with all that, 
maybe, just maybe, think for yourself. In other words, trust your intuition. I'm going to go chug some more water and tea here. <clears throat> Man, being a podcaster and having a cold is not cool. All right. See ya.